This week on the Mojo Radio Show, we say aloha from the island state of Hawaii. That's right, we're parading by the pool, getting loose at the luau, and hanging out with the hula girls. Uh, what's that? Only Bertie's going. Oh, great, that'd be right. What? Finish the promo? Yeah, whatever. Book him, Gazzo. Aloha, everybody. <laughs> uh, aloha again, Mr. Slumming by the Beach. I'm still here. Yeah, I know. You're, and I'm, I'm still here. This is my last day in Honolulu, Waikiki, and I've got to say, I did spend the morning. A guy in the foyer gave me a boogie board. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> he was checking out. He said, mate, I've got no need for this. Uh, do you want to take it? I went, well, I've never done that before. So I spent the morning on a boogie board on the waves of Waikiki and managed to beach myself, so I'm cut to shreds of rocks. <laughs> hey, you Literally, better be careful, though. You know what happened to the last famous Australian who had an experience with a boogie board, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm leaving this one in the hotel room. Uh, I've also got a bit of news for you from the home front too, mate. What's that? AP's really got his nose out of joint. Why? Why weren't we invited? Oh, yeah, no. Um, I wouldn't have got you through customs. They're very, they're very diligent here. They've got dogs and everything. <laughs> anyway, look... Uh, Welcome to the show, everybody. If you are new to the show, and I've got to say, I know there are a lot of people from Hawaii who are now listening to the show. Hello to all the friends that I met there last week. It was a spectacular week, and some of the stories I heard, the people I met, the smiles these guys greeted me with uh, was really humbling. And I've made a lot of new friends in Hawaii. We're back in the studio, back to the Mojo Radio Show, and uh, I head home on a plane tonight sometime. If you are new to the show, what's the show all about? We just find people we think are interesting, have their mojo working in some aspect of the world, in and out of work. We grab them, we spend some time together, steal their ideas, their concepts, their tips, their opinions, and we put them into a manner that you may take away and apply the mojo to your own world. This week's guest comes all the way from the UK, so uh, let's get into it. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are just tuning in, we are going to kick ass. Supreme, the Mojo Radio Show. So, Rollo, you remember my last overseas jaunt uh, a month or so ago? I headed to San Diego. Yeah, I do. Indeed. You're always away. Well, I'm not always away. I've just been fortunate the last couple of months to have a couple of overseas gigs. But I met mm. Marcus Child. He was in San Diego representing the UK as their best speaker in front of a thousand CEOs and chairmen in this room. And he was terrific. He really wowed the audience and a terrific guy. And what I loved about Marcus, apart from the fact that he tours the UK, Europe, does a lot of work around the world, speaking to corporate execs about being their best and how they can improve themselves and in doing so, improve their company. We're delighted to have him here all the way from the UK. Marcus Child, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thank you very much. And tell me, when people ask Marcus what you do, how do you like to reply? Yeah, I say, uh, if you've got an idea after this talk that I'm just about to give you, then please uh, jot it on a postcard and I'll write, to, I'll write that as my job title because I'm not quite sure. I get called a management consultant. I've been called attitude adjustment specialist. Where I want to start is around goals. And I saw a video you did on YouTube and you talked about goals. And then during 
During the video, you focused and emphasised people having a picture. Yeah. Are you a believer in dreams? Are you a believer in goals? Do the two sit together? Like, what's your take on that? Because I think people get them confused. Yeah, good, actually. Uh, Maybe I've been a bit sloppy in descriptions of this, too. Because I want to say that a dream, uh, I really believe in dreams, but a dream is, uh, is something which engages the whole brain. And a goal is a much more objective setting, left-brained activity. But I think uh, if you start with a dream, uh, it informs the system of a direction, a purpose, a destination, which then the more logical part of the brain goes to work on to find steps and milestones, etc., to make that come true. So I think you need both, actually. I think you need a picture, which is an exciting, compelling destination in mind. Uh, and once you've got that then your brain starts to sort out what the priorities are and you get goals coming from it. I think that's British gold out of the gate, Robbo. I mean, the guy's been on 60 seconds and he's already kicked a goal. That's gold. gold. It's a pint of gold if you a get it right. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. A pint of gold. Uh, dear, we should give you a pay rise. Um, <laughs> now... Well, the reason I, I, I came back to Australia after meeting you in San Diego, Marcus, and hearing you speak, and the thing I said to Rubbo is I want to get this guy on the line because you have built a reputation, and I've seen it firsthand. You tell really interesting stories. Like, you're a wonderful storyteller. And one of the stories I've heard you tell, which I was wondering whether you would share with us, is the story of a guy who I think a lot of our listeners would know called Bear Grylls. And you told the story about his Desert Island Discs. Could you share that for us? Yes. So do you, do you listen to Desert Island Discs in Australia or do you have a similar equivalent in terms of the formula? Uh, I don't know, Robbo, do we? No, I don't think there's anything. Okay, so uh, Desert Island Discs is a radio show on a rather dry station, Radio 4, which, uh, where they take a celebrity, a successful person in one field or another, and ask them to talk about their life through music. And they say, if we sent you to a desert island, which eight pieces of music would you take? And why would you take those eight pieces of music? What does that say about your life? And uh, it's a big tradition in the UK, actually. That loads of people have been on this show, from you know, prime ministers to heads of industry and scientific specialists, etc. And uh, people like Bear Grylls, too. And uh, my father-in-law was the first producer of that show. Um, and so married to the same girl for 23 years, I've had to listen to thousands of them. And, uh, but it's really interesting how they say really similar things. So uh, Ellen MacArthur, she says when she was six, she uh, decided that she wanted to be a famous yachtswoman and sail around the world. And her mother said, you can't do that, you're just a little girl. And uh, how do you know you'd like the sea? And uh, she just said, well, I, just, I think I would. But, you know, she had this picture at six. Bear Grylls is uh, eight years of age when his father comes into his bedroom and says, son, look at this poster. It's Mount Everest, the biggest, baddest mountain in the world. And his father puts this poster on the wall. And uh, Bear Grylls says on the interview, I was so animated and excited by my father's passion and enthusiasm that uh, I just couldn't get the, mount, mount, the summit of the mountain out of my head. He said, for the next eight years, each time I went to bed, the last thing I'd see was the summit of Everest. That's serious conditioning. And uh, anyway, after eight years, he decided he wanted to join this special air service instead. And uh, the poster came down and he put a load of military stuff in his bedroom. 
But when he joined the SAS, he jumped out of an aircraft one day and the parachute didn't open and he landed on his back on the desert and his back was broken in three places, paralyzed for 18 months, just uh, strapped to a bed, unable to move anything except uh, blinking and you know, speaking and all his limbs were just completely paralyzed. And he was like that for six months until a doctor arrived and said, this is the scan of your spine and uh, although it's broken in three clear places, it looks like the cord is intact. What this means is if you don't move for another year and uh, can just hold this position, then uh, potentially your spine might fuse correctly and if it does, you'll be able to feel your toes again, potentially. But it says it's a, it's a long shot, it's not really likely, but... And Bear Grylls' response is, when his father comes to the hospital next time, he says, Dad, you know, next, uh, next time you're coming, would you bring that poster of Mount Everest? Because that's where I'm going when I get out of here. And uh, apparently his mates from the SAS would turn up and say, you're torturing yourself, you know, you'll never be able to do something like that. His mother turned up and said, there's no way any son of mine will be allowed to go near Everest uh, after an event like this. But there's a lovely line in that interview where he says, none of the nurses laughed. The nurses looking after me said, they've all seen this before. They understand the importance of hope. But there he is, you know, the, uh, the youngest person Britain ever produced to the climb to the top of Everest. I think those things are a coincidence. Isn't that an incredible story, though? I've never heard that. It's absolutely massive, isn't it? Yeah. And, and uh, when you listen to that radio show, you hear so many celebrities and successful people just come on and say, I saw it when I was a kid. I made my mind up when I was six or seven or eight. And I think we all have pictures. I think that's the thing. We all have pictures. We all have aspirations and dreams. And over time, they get uh, compromised or even talked out of us by teachers and managers and parents and others who just uh, limit our, our trajectory. Gary, we better not drive after this interview because there's another point. <laughs> <laughs> just, it's an interesting thing, though, Marcus. Do you think, with your experience of travelling, speaking telling stories, and then you would hear people repeat stuff back to you. Is it your belief that perhaps we don't take the time to picture these big pictures in our mind? And the second thing is, if we do picture them, we tend to compromise and not go forward with it? I've got, I've got a client right now, or just a guy in one of my workshops. One of, one of the things I ask people to do is, uh, at the end of a workshop, if it's been a serious one, you know, sometimes these are five-day retreats. But if I get somebody to write a, a letter to themselves in a year, which they'll receive in a year's time, you know, that classic future-basing yeah. thing, of write a letter to yourself, which you'll get in a year's time, and all the things that you'd love to achieve would have come true, what would they be? Sign your name at the bottom of it. You know, put it in an envelope, seal it down, give it to me, and I'll send it to you in a year's time. I've done that a lot of times, and uh, there have been astounding consequences you know one of my clients lost 13 stone in one year oh i mean that's just incredible isn't it and uh, one of his mates then saw that happen and uh, he lost 13 stone in uh, the following two years but I, I do i do see this a lot and uh, and i think it's just people don't get exposed to this stuff enough really in the uk at least do you find a difference between the countries because i i must say it's it's interesting you bring up the uk do you see there's a, a probably more of a compromise on our dreams in the uk than you would see in maybe other countries is is it a country by country thing do you notice it's somewhere more than others are there some countries that are more bullish and will just see the picture and not compromise yeah, I mean, you know, uh, work, work, so working in France, for example, 
Uh, I get a lot of folded arms and Cartesian responses to my talking of big goals. Uh, you know, clever scientist approach, if you like. When I came to Australia, I was expecting people to be, you know, I was expecting people to think, yeah, 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 we know all this stuff. Because, uh, you know, we are self-made, entrepreneurial, enterprising. We're not afraid of anything. And, uh, and I enjoyed a good trip around Australia talking in all the major cities. And I thought people still had a real appetite for this. They know it, but they enjoyed the stuff. And what that made me think is, it's, it's imp if you listen to a piece of music and it really works for you, then listen to it again, and people do repeatedly. And uh, I think you need continuous exposure to this. And I think, therefore, uh, also answering your question, Australia seems pretty gung-ho and pretty bullish, actually, as a, as a country. South Africa is pretty strong like that as well. Um, in America, uh, I, I get quite a lot of a sense of openness still to this, too. I know it's, that's what surprised me most, actually. European countries, they say, yes, yes, but uh, it's all very well, but one must be rational and uh, get smart action plans and stuff. In... In the new world, if you like, people are much more up for it, but their appetite for it is still strong. If Robbo and I gave you a piece of paper right now and said, write that letter to yourself and we'll send it to you five yep. or ten years into the future, as someone who is going around and telling the story, you're hearing stories, this is part of your shtick, how do you apply it to yourself? What can you see for Marcus in five to ten years? Have you got a clear picture in mind of what you want, what your picture is? Yeah, I'm really clear about that. And uh, I, I, So I encourage people to write down their, their year, you know, or their goals for the year on a piece of paper, on a card, which goes in their wallet. And, uh, and I've done that just the same for me for this next year. And uh, I always do that. If I can find my wallet here somewhere... I can uh, find those goals. I, I don't want to be completely uh, open about them, but, uh, but you know, uh, this is a year where I am going to buy a house, uh, where I'm going to catch a fish every month, where I'm going to go to Yosemite and climb Lost Arrow Spire. Uh, I want to do a motorbike tour with uh, 15 mates around Ireland. I'm going to visit my daughter in Africa uh, and spend a week with her in the bush on foot because she's a she's living there um, I want to have another healthy year I'm going to do a thousand press ups a week and uh, I'm going to work for 200 days and my intention is to help build a more positive world one company at a time and uh, so that's that's my next year where I'm in five years I, I'm less excited about that I, I, I say to myself right now go as far as you can see and when you get there you'll be able to see further that, that, that is a pint of gold Robbo <laughs> maybe that's, that's a pint with chips and gravy. It's a pie. Very it's, a, it's, it's a pint and pie. It's a, a pint and a pie. It's, it's gold pint with a pie. Gold. That, that would be gold for you, actually. A pint, an Adelaide pie from the pie wagon. That would be gold for you, wouldn't it? That'd be heaven. A pie and pea floater and a pint. A there you go. Floater. How could you go wrong? <laughs> oh, this, is like, this, is like this is like Australian Anton Deck speaking to me. <laughs> <laughs> it seems. Oh, anyway. That is funny. Now, let's talk, let's schedule from dream and goal, because I think you actually have dropped some gold. I want to I talk about your views on leadership, because it's something we have as an underlying, I guess, little current through the show for the last five seasons, Marcus. And mm -hmm. I heard you talk about leadership and dialogue. Tell me the, mo the two most important words that a leader can use. Well done. 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm just cribbing that from Sir Alex Ferguson. So Alex Ferguson gave a talk at uh, Harvard when he'd retired, and uh, he said the two most important words you can say as a leader, and you want to say them as often as you can, are well done. And even though Fergie was known as a hard man, dinosaur, hair dryer, in your face kind of leader, or that's what his reputation was about, uh, you know, I think that's uh, nourishing other people, encouraging them, and uh, noticing when they do well is really significant. I think it's also significant just to point out that. Alex is a listener of our show and quite often we'll get a text or, or an email at some time of the early morning because of the time difference, just saying, well done, boys. Well done, Robbo. Well done, GB, on the Mojo Radio Show. So, uh, Pat on the back. Fergo, the Fergonator, the Fergster, if you're out there. Nice to have you on board, mate. Fergie. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> there's nowhere else to go with that, is there? No, there's not. There's nowhere else to go with that. Wow. Now, Marcus, you were in front of business leaders and business owners a lot because of your very successful career as a speaker, 200 days a year. Where do you think, what's the primary area you're noticing in today's business landscape where business leaders are coming unstuck? I think uh, think that might be sharing their dream with others. I think uh, that's that's certainly the area in in the UK which uh, they find challenging. So a leader's got a business of, say, 50 or 100 people. I'm talking about small, medium-sized enterprises. And they're not sure how far they should share their aspirations or the numbers or the profit in a belief that if people saw what those numbers were, they'd they'd see the leader as greedy. I think that's I think that's a real real place of potency actually, being able to be really properly open with all of the figures, and all of your dreams as a leader, and get other people's buy into that by sharing the action, being more democratic, showing vulnerability. There is a famous saying which found its way onto T-shirts out of the London Tube that says "Mind the Gap." How does a business leader close the gap between here's my dream and actually getting it done in an organisation? I encourage the companies I work for to build what I call a a strategy or cultural strategy on a page. And you get all the senior leaders, managers, who look after teams to join up and build a one-page document like a totem pole, which has at the very top of it the destination for this business in the next three or five years. Then beneath that, what customers have to do to make that goal come true. Beneath that, what the drivers are to make customers behave in those ways. Beneath that, how people need to behave continuously to drive the drivers which make the customers do the things which make that goal come true. The next layer is what are the conditions people need to behave in those ways, to cause those drivers to make customers do what we'd like them to do to make the goal come true. And at the very base of it, what leaders need to do to create the conditions. So leader behavior, which causes the conditions, which cause people to behave in the ways, which hit the key drivers, which make the customers do the things, buy more, come back, tell others, etc., which make our dream come true. And I ask the leadership team, uh, the largest group of leaders I've asked to do this have been 80, about 85 people. But they build this thing in language which you and I can completely understand in a logical flow 
which is a, effectively a cause and effect chart where you're going to get these behaviors from our leaders so that this destination comes to fruition. And the key thing is inclusion. So once a team have built that in funky, colorful, but fresh language, which everybody completely understands, it's the Williams Formula One idea that uh, you know, if it doesn't make the car go faster, we don't do it. If it doesn't make the business perform better, we don't do it, that kind of thing. But the key is to get that group to build that, not a consultancy to do it, and then that group take it to the rest of the business and launch it and then fulfill it by continuous uh, continuous reference to it and continuous measurement of it. And uh, I think that's, you know, everybody can have this whole strategy on a T-shirt uh, and it's completely clear. I think you plan celebrations along the way and build milestones into it, but in the end, the whole business, everybody's on the same single page. Gee, that's gold. That That is very, very nice. Is there a one page that you publish on that? Can people find that somewhere published, Marcus? Uh, do you know, I, don't, I haven't published it yet. It's, it's probably the most important thing I do in, in business, actually. But uh, the structure is easy. I mean, I can send you a structure, and if listeners want to yeah. um, you know, email in or get copies of it, then the, the structure of how to build that is really, it's so strong. And the results have been, I mean, immense. I mean, I've done some things with companies uh, in the UK which have been, you know, extraordinary. You know, one company that was ripped apart by our consumer program Watchdog in 2011 has been in the Sunday Times top five companies to work for five years in a row since doing that. You know, with a profit that went from 138 million to 196 million in uh, five years. That, uh, if you could share that with us, we will put a link to that or we'll put it in the show notes because that really is quite a profound, that's a nice way of linking in leadership, taking responsibility, understanding the environment, the conditions, the values, having broken down the dream into workable chunks to execute upon. Marcus, just on, you, you, you do speak a bit about resilience and that definitely has been a thread. Resilience is something that you do talk about. How do you define resilience? Two definitions. One is, uh, if you look in the dictionary at least, uh, a resilient object is something where if you really hit it, it doesn't change shape at all and it's so resistant that so the hammer just bounces off it. And the second form, which is more interesting, is, uh, is where you can hit an object and uh, it returns back to its former shape after taking the blow. And I like the idea of uh, things being able to hurt me, but uh, spiritually, I can return to former shape. And uh, I think that's quite, quite powerful. It's not being so tough that you don't feel pain. It's just being resilient enough to be able to feel it and uh, return to former good shape quickly. I like that idea. How do you personally exercise that in a daily or weekly manner? Uh, you have to put yourself in places where, you're, where you haven't been before. So you have to try new things so that you exp- expose yourself to that challenge. You need to know, whatever happens, that uh, there are, well, I think there are five key areas of resilience, okay? One of those is mental, another is emotional, another is social, i.e. the ability to keep yourself in good shape uh, and to do good things despite what other people are saying. Uh, one of the, I think the key one actually is, is mental, uh, sorry, should I do that again? 
I'm just thinking this aloud again. There's, there's, there's five key pillars or five forms of resilience which really matter. Mental, social, spiritual, and spiritual I mean by that you know, sort of meaning-based, where you kind of see meaning as being um, the, the, the search for meaning and doing the right thing is a kind of key element of holding yourself together. And then there's, there's physical and emotional. So let's just, I'll say that again, probably make a proper reading of this next time. Five key elements of, of resilience. First one is mental. Second is physical. Third is emotional. Fourth is social. And the fifth and the most important one is purpose-based or, if you like, spiritual resilience. And that's the one which uh, I find most meaning in because I think by having a purpose and by having a destination in mind, that triggers all the other resiliences. I don't know if that makes sense. But if you've got a goal, let's go to dream, sorry. Let's go to dream. If you've got a dream, a thing that you're really intent on doing, then you'll find the physical ways and the mental strengths, etc., to make that so because of the drive that that spiritual destination gives you. In other words, Andy Murray used to be a rather weak stripling who couldn't play five sets, but uh, over the years has got physically tougher. He went to work on himself physically. And I think when you work on yourself physically, it makes you mentally stronger. And when you get mentally stronger, you get emotionally tougher too. So he doesn't cry now so much when he loses a match and run to his mum. He just uh, is much more stoic about it. And uh, he's much more socially independently capable too. So when people ask him why he wore the Croatian shirt supporting Croatia against England, you know, he doesn't apologize for it now. He's a Scottish nationalist and he's, he's really fit in his skin. But what makes a man get stronger? I think uh, if you really want to be the world's number one tennis player or certainly Britain's number one, then, uh, and that's your purpose and that's your dream, then you're prepared to put yourself through all the paces which make that thing come true. And as, and as a consequence, you become physically, mentally, emotionally, socially more resilient. So I think it's all about, uh, if you're trying to do what I'm trying to do, answering your question properly, if you're trying to help build a more positive world, one company at a time, you have to keep going into tough places, trying tough talks with tough audiences who uh, you're not supposed to come out alive from. And by doing so, you're on purpose and you learn from the heat of the fire. How do you handle your own voice of doubt? Uh, remembering that... You've been through bigger stuff before. If I feel nervous in front of 2,000 people or just about to go on and feel that way, I remember my father and uh, his passing. When my father died, I was asked to make the speech at his funeral. I thought I could never do that. It was the toughest thing ever. And uh, I, I properly channel that. I mean, I just said, you know, Marcus, you've done the hard one. This is, a, this is much easier than that. I have to put it in perspective. Is there a lesson that you've taken from your leadership work in organisations that you bring to your own family or that you recommend to leaders who have their own children? Like, what's the leadership lesson you've learnt that you would suggest people think about with regards to their own family and their own children? There's a, there's a phrase which I repeat, the map is not the territory. You know, uh, when you look at a map, you're just looking at a map, you're not looking at the real thing. And, uh, and I think that's the biggest lesson, actually. The boldest enterprising leaders just uh, 
just decide to have a go anyway. And, uh, and I, I think if you pass it on to your children, that's a really strong thing. That's a really strong thing. And then uh, when they go to sleep at night, you know, be with them just before they go off to sleep and uh, remind them of how much you love them and, uh, and what they're looking forward to and what their dreams might be. The, the equivalent of a Bear Grylls bedtime. But uh, I, know that's, I know that's really important and really powerful. I did that with my own son, who was a little boy wanting to be on the stage and uh, to be a, a, a West End actor. And, uh, and when people said it would be ridiculous and he wouldn't get educated if he did, well, I just thought, uh, business people say to me, the big line they say to me is, whatever you do, follow your dreams. It's not about education, do what you love. That's what they say, do what you love. And so uh, my son became a West End actor, as it happened, you know, with uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Oliver and um, other, other big shows like The Sound of Music with Connie Fisher, big national West End shows and TV work and stuff like that. And didn't get formally educated as a consequence. But uh, to me, that didn't matter. I just thought, uh, what's your dream? And go and make it so. So I became a very wealthy man. Do you remember a, a moment in your childhood that, had a big impact on who you are as a man today, Marcus? Yes. Uh, the first thing I ever did of any use was uh, climbing a rock face in Derbyshire. And my teacher looked at me and said, you've got a gift. And uh, if you stay at school, I'll set up a climbing club. And uh, you could be a world-famous rock climber. And uh, I failed all my exams at school, done really badly and was going to leave. And when he said that, I changed my mind and stayed at school. He convinced my parents to make me stay, and uh, that changed my life. I still see him today, and Mr. Shannon is, right? is uh, mm, and Mr. Shannon is going, to, is going to climb with me in Yosemite uh, in October at seventy years of age uh, on a very serious rock climb. Wow! But that was me, uneducated, uneducated kid, supposed to you know, work in a donut factory with my brother, and Mr. Shannon intervened and persuaded me to become a rock climber. And uh, when I got to know him better, I said, you know, I want to be like you. I want to be a teacher. How does that happen? He said, well, I went to university. I said, which one? He said, it's Cambridge. And uh, I ended up getting a distinction at Cambridge University. And I would never have done that had uh, a teacher not stepped in and said, you need to believe in yourself more. Isn't it funny, though, Marcus? We, everybody, when you speak to them, everybody has one teacher. Everybody has a, has a teacher like yours, just one believed in them, could see something, drew the best out of them. Do you hear that a lot? Does everyone's got one teacher that believed in them? Well, I would hope so. I'd hope, that, I'd hope all teachers believed in uh, all of their kids. Um, but, yeah, look, I mean, that's, uh, it's the case. I, you know, I, I sometimes speak to leaders about who are their ghosts and who are their spirits, who are the ghosts that live in their memory, who have uh, not served them very well any, in, in any leadership role, and uh, who are the spirits. And uh, just remember what the spirits did. Focus on what the spirits did. I've been really fortunate to have lots of them, actually. When I look back over my career, I've had lots of people step in and just uh, ask me to try new things. That's made a load of difference. We interviewed a guy called Dr. Jason Silk, who's the sports performance coach for the St. Louis Cardinals, the baseball team, World Series baseball winning team in the States. And I said to him, when you look at the great leaders... What's the one attribute that you think they possess as a group? And he said, without question, 
the great leaders, the great performers, the people who are outstanding have an obsession with learning. And I'd be interested to know what's your primary means for getting creative inputs? Because for you to solve problems with creative outputs, you've got to have creative inputs. Where, where or how do you get your new ideas, your new thinking? What's the best way for you to gain that? Well, for me, it's one company at a time, experimentation, actually. So I learn all my stuff. I think I learn most of it anyway, uh, working with clients, trying to solve their business issues. And because I work with so many, probably 60 clients at least in a year, then uh, it's really refreshing just to go at new problems with new people and try old ideas and new ideas and unthinkable fresh ideas just to see. So it's, uh, it's really, for me, it's really at the coalface. It's action. But the stuff I read as well, I read strange things about how to catch sea trout and uh, how to climb mountain faces and, uh, and stuff like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and those kinds of you know, books which aren't mainstream business books. Shakespeare, I was an English literature teacher and uh, I think there's loads of stuff in the old ways as well as uh, in, in the current new thinking. So you know, I'm exposed to the current new thinking all the time in terms of what the internet gives us and what we read there, but I like to go to places where you wouldn't normally go so I can stay a bit homespun. And I don't really like to listen to other, other business speakers very much because uh, I think their ideas are so good that I'd probably end up saying them too. And the important <laughs> thing is to try and find fresh stuff. It's good that you know yourself at least though. Yeah, exactly that. Well, yeah, I think that's probably true. Well, it's interesting because... Um, I, I also want to say there's something about great leaders, okay? The thing about great leaders is great leaders don't create followers. They create great leaders and uh, more leaders. You know, they create more leaders. And I think that's the real thing. You know, the mark of the good teacher is when the student surpasses that teacher's ability. And the same with the mark of a good parent or a good... I think it's a great thing to say to oneself as a manager or as a leader. How can I enable these people who I'm working with to become better than me? Oh, that's nice. Generosity is at the heart of all this. Another one for the wall, guys. Yep, that's good. Where, where is your deep thinking time? You just mentioned thinking uh, a moment ago, Marcus. We had Cal Newport on the show who wrote Deep Work, who talked about spending time each day with cognitively challenging work where you immerse yourself in it for longer periods of time. Do you have a practice like that? No, I, I don't. It's not, it's not an obvious one where uh, I de- dedicate time in the day to a, uh, a new, fre- fresh thought. I, uh, I, I rise early. I know that's a routine. I, and I rise early and I'm normally doing nothing but thinking about how the day's going to go and what I'm going to suggest to this group. And, uh, and shower time's quite powerful. When I come out of the shower, then I tend to sit down and uh, write more notes. And that's where the fresh stuff comes. So uh, I'm often alone in my work because I travel to various places, and I think that matters. So I'll go to bed tonight, really will go to bed in, a, in three hours' time, thinking about tomorrow, and when I rise in the morning... The only thing on my mind, really, is uh, is how the day is going to work for that group. And I'll be thinking about that all the way through my preparing for the day. And uh, and I know I get really good ideas in that dawn time. How do you record your ideas, Marcus? Are you a journaler or are you a recorder? You use Evernote? Well, how do you, how do you store 
or record your inputs and or the ideas you'll present to a group? I write them down on paper. So uh, I have a black, a series of black books, little black leather-bound books, and I write all the stuff in there by hand. For me, the kinesthetic thing of turning uh, an idea or thought into ink on a page. I used to be a school teacher. And, uh, and I've, I've, I've lived with that so analogue. As you travel around, not just the UK, but around the world by the sounds, yeah. what's the most alarming trend you're seeing amongst business leaders or C-level executives in any organisation? Like, what's, what's concerning you at the moment? Uh, it's, that, it's that line about uh, controlling people, actually. I think it's about controlling others. And... Uh, and not yeah. I, 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 I'm I'm a, I'm a, there's a couple of things. I'm a, I'm a, I've just learnt. I don't know whether we can broadcast this. I've been I've been working for a company, and one of, one of the issues is can you handle success? Actually, it's an odd thing to say, but uh, I've been saying to people all these years, have really big pictures, etc. And sometimes they get there, and then they can't. Ha- they they're surprised by what they find and do immoral things. Uh, and, I, I, you know, they just get power drunk, crazed by it, actually. And that's been, a, that's been a, that's a real surprise. Some people I thought I've known and really liked the company of who have uh, set really big goals. When they actually get there, they can hardly believe they were going to, and uh, they get corrupted. That's one thing that uh, really bothers me. Um, controlling others and thinking that uh, other people aren't as good as you, and uh, if you can't think of it, then uh, um, then it can't be worthwhile. That thing there is a, is a really it's a massive limiting way that uh, certainly some senior managers get to because we can't think of it; it can't be thought. Uh, and thinking that the world's thinking that the world's a reflection of their values rather than what stuff that they can't control. You know, it's it's Dylan singing. You know, in and the times they are changing. If you can't lend a hand, get out of the way, really, because uh, some of these people just uh, don't get out of the way. Don't give the give the young people their head. The next generation's brighter than this one. That's evolution. So you've got to enable that rather than uh, think you can control it. I think there's a term for that, wouldn't it be politician? <laughs> yes. Well, they're all middle aged, I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Maybe there is yeah, something sadly. in that. Mm. Marcus, what's the biggest change you've made in the last couple of months or last half that's had a profound impact on your performance or productivity? Like what's Bruce Lee talked about, it's not the daily addition, but the subtraction. Hack away at the unessentials. Is there something you've changed in your way of approaching life and or work? That's had a big effect on your performance uh, or productivity? Yeah, I, I think thinking about state, actually. That's kind of been a new... Well, it's felt fresh to me again. But the most important thing you can take into a room is the state you're in. And being cognizant of that, being really conscious of the state that you're taking into a place, I think uh, it, it, it's, just a, it, it's, it's kind of the latest thing in my head in terms of a, a fresh change. 
So when you're walking into a room, what state am I taking in here? And how, how can you, you know, dial up that in terms of resourcefulness? And it, 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 it's a thought you've, you've heard, I've heard, etc., loads of times. But where I'm living right now, that thing there is a, is a real strong resonator, actually. What state am I taking into this room? Now, Stephen Covey, I think, said the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And right now I'm thinking the main thing is your state. And I think it's the main thing because it's the question we ask of people all over the earth every single day, whether we're interested to find out the answer or not. People say, good morning. How are you? What state are you in? That's what they really want to know. Are you happy? Are you healthy? Are your family okay? Are you enjoying your job? Are you looking forward to the future? Have you got a dream? And I think uh, just resetting our state, minute by minute, reset your state, next encounter, that thing there, I think, is, uh, is gold dust, actually. How do you do that? So it's funny because you say it's something people may or may not have heard. Chances are they have. It's something we know is terribly important, but we don't keep the main thing the main thing. Tell me what you actually go through to put yourself in that moment to be in the right state. There's a number of things, but I will often imagine the moment when this thing is over. And I'll visualize, so I'll see, hear, and feel the moment of elation, uh, achievement, satisfaction, however you want to see it. And it might just be me walking to my car, hearing the gravel under my feet, hearing the click of the uh, car door as I get in, turning the key, making a phone call to my loved one and say how much, that, uh, how much of a day this was and anticipate the feeling of uh, that elated walk. And it might just be as simple as that. It might be that I look at the key that my mum left me when uh, she died, and uh, a golden key which I shine up uh, routinely. And, uh, and when I put that in my front door and turn it, then uh, my hand touches the key which my mum held. And, uh, and if that's with me, that's, uh, I might remember that. Or uh, I might start the day brushing my shoes with the brushes my father left me after he uh, passed on. But uh, there's, there's loads of anchors, and uh, you know, that NLP anchoring stuff, I think, is really, really strong. Well, you started the interview strong, and you finished strong. Robbo's had, I'm counting, 13 pints since you spoke. Uh, so I think we're going well. Um, Robbo, it would be remiss of us... Not to have a pork pie as well? <laughs> Back on pie floaters. Um, it would be remiss of us not to talk to Marcus about a song. So let's change this around. Let's, let's do the Desert Island Discs type thing. Marcus, tell me a song that if we played it on the show for our listeners would be a song that best represents you as a man. Crikey, that's a humdinger of a question. I wish I'd had the chance to think about that. Um... <laughs> I remember the cartoon of uh, Peter Pan, where the song You Can Fly. And I sometimes thought that uh, when I pass on in my funeral, I would like that to play. Wow. I've had this motto, you can if you think you can, for a long time. And uh, I think, really, we can surprise ourselves. Yeah. 
Uh, that's the main thing. We should live a life where we're expecting to surprise ourselves and hoping that the people that we love will surprise themselves too. You know, it's interesting, Marcus, just to, to finish this up, we just talked about anchoring states and visualising the end of a gig, where's the gravel under your shoes or the key in the door or a call to a loved one. And that's visualising the outcome and how we want to feel. And I, I think it's a really powerful piece for people to take away. And you then sort of moved on to doing that with life. And James Lipton, who hosts Inside the Actors Studio, has this wonderful question. He asks all these legendary actors, directors and producers in front of a live studio audience of students. And one of the questions is, if heaven exists, what would you like God to say when you get to the pearly gates? And it's sort of the same type of thing as here's the song I like to be my final track. And it kind of all, to me, it all sits together, is that looking at the outcome you want, the dream, was where, which is where we started this interview. And I think it's, it's really been a very powerful, profound journey you've taken us through, mate. And um, I've got to say, I've really, really enjoyed this chat. Oh, me too. Me too. It's got me thinking. You know, it's lovely. Um, my, my headmaster... Uh, I can't remember anything in my school reports at all except for the final line that the headmaster wrote when, uh, when I was leaving. And I guess he couldn't say anything about my intellect, but he did say the only line he wrote was, I, I admire his zest for life. Roy Smith. <laughs> Nice. And uh, I guess if I, when, when I got to the pearly gate, I'd quite like God to say, well done, you kept up a zest for life the whole way through and you passed <laughs> it on. You know, we've never, ever asked that question on the show. It only occurred to me when you were talking about songs. Uh, it's a couple of things. We've never had Jerry Rafferty before, have we, Robert? No, never had Jerry. that's a first. Never had the big Jerry. Haven't had Peter Pan either. And uh, they'll definitely be in the show. And it's just, a, I think it's a really powerful thing to think about is, you know, what would you like them to say? And it's something I did hearing the show and inside the actor's studio, you'll find on YouTube, it's a deep, deep reservoir of the best actors, producers, directors in the world. I think it's ah, a cracking question. So do I. <laughs> so do I. It's the sort of thing that you need a bit, well, some people might need a bit of time for, that's all. But uh, I did love the spontaneity of our conversation. I love the way that I didn't know where I was going to go next. And, uh, and, neither, and neither did we. <laughs> that's right. Do we uh, ever? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, a conversation usually turns to beer and pies, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Got there a, a bit quicker today only because you were dropping golden pints. Um, mate, where do we find you? Where do people look up Marcus Child? Uh, well, I, I, I have a website, which is, uh, um, I think it's, uh, well, my company's called Positive Reframe. .co.uk so there must be yeah, www.positivereframe.co.uk but you know Marcus Child um, on YouTube and stuff like that I think you know I'm not very good at this stuff I don't really do any, <laughs> That's right. no, this Gary. I don't do any <laughs> any publicity at all I mean it's just all my business is word of mouth yeah don't worry we'll uh, I'll find it I'll put it in the show notes everybody can just click straight through to your stuff and I've got to say, mate, thank you for your time. I met you in San Diego briefly. I had heard a lot about you through our country, through the CEO network called Tech, which is Vistage Worldwide. That really was, uh, was, it was great, Robert, wasn't it? That was great. Absolutely. Time for another Boddington's. 
Hi, it's Lane Beachley here, seven times all surfing champion. I've seen a lot of goofy footers and maybe a few kooks in my lifetime, but Robbo and Gary from the Mojo Radio Show, they definitely taste cake. Before we close this little shindig of ours today, mm. I did do some more work yesterday afternoon. Yeah. I went into the streets, as they say, in the industry. Roving reporter. Yeah, I, I met a lady called Sid mm. and I, I, I did a couple of gigs and Sid was in the audience and I've got to say, if you look into someone's eyes that were full of smiles, that was Sid. A generational Hawaiian with a long, long history through the family and one of these girls that you spoke to and she knew the culture, she believed in the culture, she's the new generation of Hawaiian who understands where they came from and what the important stories are to pass on. And I asked Sid whether I could just grab her for a few seconds and talk about some of the history behind what they call mana. And it is a saying in Hawaiian, which really you could transcribe into mojo. And I wanted to sort of get behind this because I, I heard the saying and thought it was rather special. I grabbed Sid and we laid down this little interview. Sid is one of the most beautiful spirits I've met on the islands during my little journey here. Um, Sid, tell me, how many generations do you go? Like, heritage-wise, what's the history of you and your family? You know, it's hard to, it's hard to say. Uh, a lot of the records for Hawaiian um, genealogy were lost uh, in the war. So I can trace my personal lineage back accurately about 10 generations back. But anything before that, we're not really sure. Yeah. You are Hawaiian for 10 generations, is that right? Yeah, and a lot of other things too. Most people in Hawaii are actually mixed. There are very few pure Hawaiian people left. Mm. Yeah. Now, you and I were talking about something I'd heard called mana, which I was fascinated by. Tell me, explain to me what mana is. So mana is um, the Hawaiian word for power or strength. And people, they totally mis- they confuse mana with physical strength. So people think that mana is like being able to lift 100 pounds. It's not. It's a, it's a spirituality that comes from within. And um, mana can actually be power inside of you, but... The Hawaiians believe that everything possessed mana. Like a rock possesses mana. The trees possess a certain amount of mana. And you can collect mana. Like you can touch someone. You can take their mana. And um, going back to a kind of more ancient tradition, there was a, a certain amount of mana that you could get from sexual conquest as well. So it's evolved quite a bit, I think, in modern Hawaiian thinking. Um, where mana really is just a spiritual understanding of who you are. And people that have mana, you just know. Like, if you don't have mana, they, they have no mojo. That's really what it is. So could we do Who Stole My Mana as a, as a rap? Totally, totally. I totally buy that book. Like, you can make me a Who Stole My Mana um, journal. I'll be your first customer. <laughs> now, tell me something. How do people get mana? So you've got a, say you've got a child. Okay who has got Hawaiian descent Mm -hmm. and you want that child to be raised with mana, how does one do that? It's a good question. I don't truly believe that you have to be Hawaiian to have mana. I think that every culture has their own form of mana. Um, Either their their own understanding or misunderstanding of what mana is. Like there's chi, right? Mm. People uh, practice yoga to get more spiritual 
depth of understanding. Mm. Um, I am a I'm, a I'm a Christian. I believe that my source of my mana comes from Jesus, and understanding um, what my role is in in the kingdom of God. And the way that we give mana to my son is by loving him. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it. We love him. We empower him. We give him the ability to um, to be an independent thinker. And we also empower him to understand that he has to respect the people around him. Mm-hmm. You've never, I've never met someone that had a lot of mana that was a jerk. Mm-hmm. Can I say asshole? Mm-hmm. I think you just did. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there aren't many people with mana that are not good people. Um, and they may think they have mana, but true mana comes from understanding your place in the universe, understanding that you're connected with other people. And the bad things that you spew, you can give your mana away. Like, someone doesn't have to take it from you. You can give it away by just not being respectful. And so teaching your children how to... How to respect other people, how to love. Loving is the number one source of mana. People think that that love has like a, a cap on it. Mm-hmm. It's like when you have a second child, right? The first child, you think, oh, how can I love anybody as much as I mm-hmm. love the first one? And then you have a second one, and you're like, wow, I didn't even know I had the capacity to love two. Mm-hmm. And I love them differently, but I can love both. And um, that's what mana is. The more you give, the more you get, truly. Gold, Robert. Absolute gold. So let's talk about maybe if you were... You go back to the ancient times and the Hawaiian warriors. And because during the show we talked a lot about resilience and grit and how do you develop that resilience and grit. It's something you and I would talk about You know, in, in, after one of the sessions. We were talking about how you were saying that even in the females can pull that special mana and it was right. that, you used the word resilience and that, that, that not toughness, but backbone. Right. How does one, how does a warrior, male or female, where do they draw that mana from, do you think? I think every trial that you go through, every tear, every broken heart, you can make a choice to to rise above it. Mm. You can make a choice to be strong. Like, being strong isn't like a, it's not necessarily a gift. Some people have the gift of being strong. They're raised that way. But you can choose to be strong, right? And so, um, here in Hawaii, we have a, we, we call strong women a mana wahine. And basically, basically a wahine is a woman. Mana means, you know, strength and power. But the true women that are mana wahine, they, they draw on a power that comes from tribulation, that comes mm-hmm. from heartache, that comes from husbands that are addicted to drugs. It comes from the loss of a, a loved one. That's, so, that's where you get power from. It's resilience. Mm. And the more you go through, and the Bible says that clearly too, like mm. you, it's trial by fire. You're refined by that fire. And Hawaiians knew that. Mm. Hawaiians had a very deep sense of spirituality. And um, a lot of people think that the Hawaiian religions that came in were like in the 18th and 19th century, like when Captain Cook came to Hawaii, they had this established, what he thought was an established um, religious system, but it wasn't actually, that was an introduced religious system. Hawaiians had an entirely different religion mm. prior to the Tahitians introducing that system. And um, their god was Io. And if you take a look at their true god as compared to the god of the Hebrews, um, they're very similar in nature. Mm. And 
that's where the old Hawaiians and the ones that lived in the temples and that practiced the true Hawaiian religion, they worshiped eel and they, they understood that balance of life, that flow of energy. Um, and that's where the strong Hawaiian women get it. Mm. I mean, Hawaiians are very reticent. They don't talk about secrets. Mm. So unfortunately, a lot of our, our traditions and our practices, they've died with our, our kupuna, or we call them kupuna, our, our grandparents and our, our predecessors. Mm. But they only pass knowledge on to certain people. And many times it was the spokesman. Or, but later when, um, really what happened, there was a huge drug, I'm just going to be honest, mm. there was a huge drug ec- epidemic, alcoholism that came into Hawaii. Most indigenous people ex- mm. experienced something like that. Mm. Um, and with the fall of the strong man came the rise of a strong woman because she needed to be strong. Mm. And that's why we have so many strong women today in mm. Hawaii. It's, it's interesting. Uh, hearing you talk, Sid, there seems to be mana in the people. Oh, yeah. Like the Hawaiian people, when you walk down Waikiki or around Pearl City, where we've been, and you see groups them together, there seems to be a power, a unity, and a coming together of the Hawaiian people. Right. They have this real mana. Where does that come from? So, you know, I don't necessarily think that we isolate mana as one quality. Mm. Um, you've obviously heard the word aloha as a greeting, yeah. right? But um, aloha is where you get your mana from, too. So the origin of the word aloha, so alo is like your countenance. It's your face. It's what you see in a person. And ha is your breath. And when Hawaiian people greet each other, they actually don't kiss each other on the cheek. They, um, they press their temples together and their noses side by side, and they breathe in each other's essence. And that's, a, that's what the original Hawaiian greeting was. And it's kind of like the word shalom, where it mm. means hello, it means goodbye, it mm. means peace be with you. It means may your breath you know, interact with mine. And um, when you're raised with, with aloha at the core of your, of your being, you're different. Mm. Like I said, you can't be an asshole and have mana. It's the mm. same thing. When you're raised with understanding what aloha is, it's not, it's not just a high. It's not just a thing you text. And it truly it, it embodies what love is. Mm. And that's why Hawaiian people tend to be full of mana is because they're full of aloha too. I'm actually a bit scared now, Sid, because I think Robert's going to expect me to go back to the studio and hug him, put my nose by his and <laughs> breathe in his essence. You and you don't want to do that because it's all just Tim Tams and Burbis. See, <laughs> this is beautiful. I love... You have, you've got a beautiful spirit. You really do. You've got a beautiful spirit. You've got a beautiful way. The people here love you. And um, I really thank you for spending some time with us on the Mojo Radio Show. We are so blessed to have you too. It's been a really fun couple of days. So can I say mahalo? You can say mahalo. <laughs> Sounds like a lovely lady. Sid was amazing. Just honestly, one of those people you sat with who had the most beautiful soul. Yeah, right. It's quite appropriate that you talk about mana because no matter where you go in the world, these island Islander people, they all always have it. They, they always have their mojo, their mana going, don't they? Well, they do, but when you sit and talk to people like Sid, um, and I'm before I leave the South, I'm catching up with a, a famous Hawaiian former baseball player called Kenny Harrison. And when you, when you talk to these people, you appreciate the fact that a lot of that mana came from resilience, grit, and what they had to face in their culture over the years. It's not just something where... The sun comes up every day and it's all happy days. It really is 
the way the mana comes from the fact they've confronted hardship, mm. they've confronted discomfort, they've they've fr- they've confronted a history of hard times. But by coming through it, they know that they can come through it. And that's where the mana comes from. And I love, I love that term, mana. Yeah, I'm jealous you got to spend some time with her. That's, that's lovely. The Mojo Radio Show. So here's a, here's a segue for you. Uh, Marcus talked about desert island discs. Yes. I'm going to jump us across to Tower Records. Did you ever go to a Tower Records in America? Uh, yeah, look, vaguely recall going to a Tower Records, yes, but uh, it would have been a long time ago. The last time I was in the States, I was in my mid-20s. Well, just last week, Russ Solomon, who was the guy who pioneered the superstores called Tower Records, he, he sadly died at the age of 92. To give you some idea of the scope of this business... They had 212 stores. It was a billion-dollar enterprise. Wow. Now, the reason we're finishing with this story about Tower Records and Mr. Solomon was, if you remember back, I mean, I used to go to the one on Sunset. Every time I went to America, I used to go to the one on Sunset in L.A. Mm. And it was funny because you'd walk in and you would expect to see the Gunners there. You'd expect to see Ozzy Osbourne or the boss, Springsteen, or you'd expect to see Elton John there because they were all super fans of the store. And I read this great quote by a journalist in the States who was writing about the death of Mr. Solomon. And he said, when you walked into the Tower Records store in New York City's Greenwich Village neighbourhood back in the day, you didn't just go in there to buy an album and then leave. To me, going into Tower was like visiting the Metropolitan Music of Art or attending a baseball game. It required a certain investment of time. Now, (laughs) if you break this down, the reason that those Reich icons and every, every journalist of Rolling Stone or Billboard wrote about the same thing is that when you went in there, you knew the staff, knew their stuff. And Mr. Solomon never employed on your resume or whether you were a good worker. The only criteria was how much do you know about music? How much do you love music? And when the Vietnam War broke out, he actually let his staff go and protest if they wanted to because oh, really? he had, yeah, he had this Woodstock approach to staff, like do what you love, care deeply about what you do, know everything there is to know about what you do and fight for a cause. And I don't know, if, if, if I think back to Tower Records, it was an iconic location where you went for exactly that. Like, the place was deep, not just with music, but in knowledge, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it was built on that cred, though, wasn't it? it that, that's what the brand was built on, that people knew you'd go there because people knew what they were talking about. And we can take that as a lesson. I mean, this is a massive gone-but-not-forgotten and a lesson of rock. And I think that's the first one of it. Imagine employing people based on different criteria. And the second thing was he said that he stole ideas from supermarket merchandising. So he didn't just stick to here's what other record stores do. Mm. He stole from other categories and said, how do I take it from that, apply it to my category in order to do things differently? Mm. Well, clever guy, right? Well, he's a clever guy and this was a massive business that went bankrupt. So... The other thing to finish with is that you can create your own category, care deeply about what you want to do, give your staff the freedom to believe in something, have the passion for something, recruit differently, steal ideas from different categories, all those things we could apply to our world. The other thing is that he went bankrupt and 
The issue was that he wasn't running the business of the future. He was just running the business of today. And every entrepreneur and every company should be running two businesses, the one you have today and the one you're going to become in three, five or 10 years time. And he didn't see Napster. He didn't see Apple Music. He didn't see Spotify. He kept doing what he was doing really well, but he wasn't looking into the future to say, not what's going to happen to our company, but what's going to happen to our industry. And you can first look at Netflix when the, when the founder of Netflix, Reed Hastings, was investing in the internet back in the mid-90s because he got a glimpse of it and said, oh, this actually could put movies into the home. If I don't invest in this, where would that leave us? And it probably would leave them where Blockbuster are. Yeah, right. Do you remember, do you right. remember Blockbuster, don't oh, you, mate? Vaguely, yeah. <laughs> Was that a sledgehammer? <laughs> I think it's just a great story. I think it's a great gone for not forgotten. There are so many lessons that we can take from Russ Solomon, founder of Tower Records, who died recently at the age of 92. And uh, I think we should play out with some iconic Tower Records Sunset Boulevard music. Yeah. What are you taking us out with? Well, I, I've, you've done a bit of thinking about that. I've done a bit of thinking about what we're going to play. And I actually think I'm going to take a few cues from what you've just talked about. You talked about Sunset Boulevard, but I'm going to go back a bit from Guns N' Roses. I'm going to go right back to, back to the late 60s, early 70s, and I'm going to say The Doors. And then you could say that Tower Records went broke because they weren't sort of keeping their eye on the future. So keeping your hands on the, on the wheel and your eyes upon the road would probably mean that we should play Roadhouse Blues. We're out. Chapuna nature, papa lula nature, papa nature, 
up your vows. Give up your Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.